Hello, and welcome to the Not A Game Podcast. This is episode 58. I'm Tom Hatfield, and with me I've got um, Jordan Eric Waller. Hello. And uh, Dan Pierce. Hello. Creator of um, Ten Second Ninja and Half of a Tall Tree. Um, before, mm-hmm. before we start, I just wanted to make a quick announcement to you guys uh, to let you know that we're actually going to be moving websites probably about when this is released. Uh, previously, we've been on GamingDaily.co.uk, uh, thanks to our um, friend Craig, but we should be moving to a new website at notagamepodcast.com. The reason I'm saying this is because, as part of this, we're going to have to move the RSS feed, which is what um, you subscribe to for the podcast or for iTunes or whatever podcatcher thing you use. Um, hopefully, that should work. But if, for any reason, it's like October 2014 or f- uh, further on, and this is the most recent podcast you can hear, then something's gone wrong and you should unsubscribe and resubscribe at the new website. Hopefully that won't be a problem, but I'm putting it here in case anyone needs that. Okay, that's the announcement stuff done. Um, anyway, what I was going to say is, um, yes, now for a silly question. Um, I know Dan loves his dad jokes. Yeah, <laughs> sort so, of reluctantly. <laughs> what is the worst dad joke you know, possibly from your actual dad? Um, oh my god. Well, my, my actual dad is amazing at them. There's, I, we have like this kind of, this, this kind of special connection where I'll, I'll, I'll know that he's gonna make a joke and exactly what the joke is. And then two seconds later, he'll repeat it. I'm so well trained at this that I frequently make sarcastic Twitter jokes like my dad does. Um, and it's just terrible because, I started doing it sort of ironically, like, oh, nod, nod, wink, wink, isn't this a bad joke? But I'm doing it so much now that I think people might just assume I'm horrible. <laughs> um, I love not that my dad's it. horrible. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm not, I can't think of one off the, the top of my head. I mean, mostly the, I think like the kind of quintessential dad joke is just repeating something from Monty Python. <laughs> like, like you know when a uh, Dragon Age Inquisition was announced, and people were like, "No one expects the Dragon Age Inquisition," and it's like, that's the joke that everyone's going to make. That's the obvious joke. That's like the dad joke. Um, what about you, John? Well, I will borrow one from somebody else's dad, which is um, when you say to him, "Oh, are you coming?" As in, "Are you coming with us?" He'll go, "No, it's just the way I'm standing." <laughs> <laughs> it's great, but I love bad jokes and I love puns. Um, I was gonna say, um, my dad has a doormat that says Hatfield House, <laughs> so you literally cannot enter his premises without being dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so Dan, uh, what have you been playing this week? Oh, this week, or possibly further back than this week, since you don't come on the podcast every week. Yeah, well. I've You've been playing an entire lifetime to draw on. Yeah, I, I any game ever that I played, I can just reference. Um, I know the games I sort of been playing the most recently. Um, I've gone back to Lefrasses recently. They're not that much. Um, I spent a lot of time recently playing Dark Souls, which I'm very, very into, and I'm kind of juggling playing a lot of Dark Souls with playing a lot of uh, GTA Online which I recently realized is probably my most played game of the past year. Um, and that was kind of a weird realization because I don't think of it as a game that I actually like very much. Hmm. 
but I do just play a lot of it. It's really good to switch your brain off and just um, drive around just being, being awful. Um, but yeah, there's not that much interesting stuff you can say about GTA Online. So mainly Dark Souls. I, I really like Dark Souls. It's, it's super interesting. Uh, I was going to say about Lufraz, I, I kind of felt with that game that I kind of hit a wall once I had all the things and then I played around with them for a bit that I kind of felt done. But um, So what's it like going back to it? I don't know, maybe... Yeah, uh, how do you keep it interesting for yourself? Um, Not to slam Ryan Jamie there. Why not? It's, it's weird. My um, For some reason, I, I have no idea why, but the, the way I approach... Lufthansa's now is completely different from when the game came out. Um, when the game came out, I was more focused on progression and the game feel and enjoying those things. And once I kind of got used to it, I was just kind of done with it. I, I got it on PC and I got it on PlayStation Vita. Um, but going back to it, for some reason, I've just become really obsessed with getting a high score, which isn't something that I usually do. Um, but suddenly I've become really obsessed with it because I've realized that I missed how the game felt and what I really wanted was just an excuse to get back to play it. And, you know, motivating yourself to constantly be trying to beat your high score is a really good motivation to keep playing a game when you're used to mechanics or you've got all the unlocks or whatever. Um, so I'm finding it really fun. I'm finding a bunch of stuff with how they add up scores and how, you know, the score system's paced. Um, that I just hadn't really recognized before and it, you know, stuff that's super interesting in that it's just a game about keeping your combo going. If you lose your combo, you feel like you failed. And um, mm-hmm. there was actually, that's a really um, interesting... There's a really interesting article where Rami talked about that, actually, and how he kind of like didn't like that anymore because he was really angry when he made the game. And now he kind of thinks that that's... Uh, and um, he kind of feels that that angry feeling is in there, as part, of, particularly as part of the score, uh, score modifier thing. Um, yeah, so it's interesting how, you know, stuff like that kind of crops up in your work a lot. Um, I like to sort of talk about my own work and a sort of self-indulgent plug. Uh, I was like, I went back and looked at Castles in the Sky recently. Um, and it was a really strange experience where you realize, like, you're just different now. And in a bunch of ways that you weren't expecting. Mm. Um, like, the game is kind of... I know, I, I think a lot of it comes from having to express something within your work. And I know this is like super artsy, fartsy, indie stuff, but like, um. Artsy, fartsy, indie if... stuff for tall trees, never. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but like, when, when we made Castles in the Sky, I, I know that I was definitely in a place where I felt like I wasn't ready to let go of being a kid. Mm. Um, and it was something that I thought about every single day. I was like kind of obsessive over it. Um, and once we made Castles in the Sky, we got a bunch of reviews where people really got that and really understood that the game was sort of about how that feels. Um, and from that point on, like, I just haven't felt the need to express that anymore. Like, I don't really think about it. Um, which is strange because for a while it was a really huge part of my life. Um, so going back and playing it, it's like, it almost feels like someone else made it. Um, and I, I kind of, get why Rami would feel that way where it's like it there's parts of you that you completely forgot were there that you see popping up in your work in a very obvious way and that can be um 
yeah, it can be really, really strange. It can either feel really, really nice because it takes you back to who you once were, but there's a lot of elements where you're like, I did not even realize that that was something going through my head. You think that making um, like got it out of your head, like it kind of uh, resolved it somehow. Yeah, I guess um, a lot of it's just like how, like you know, when something's internalized or like you have a, a problem or something that you're trying to deal with, and then you talk it through with someone, and then you instantly feel better just because it's out there now. Yeah, I um, know what you mean. With with certain things like, like you know, what Custom Sky was about, whenever I would say to people, like, you know, I really miss being a kid, they'd go like, yeah, it was, you know, it's great being a kid, you don't have to do anything. i am sort of be like, no, it's it's more complicated than that. And I can never quite express it, which I think is why I became obsessed with it. Um... So when Castles in the Sky came out, it, it was like this huge release, like I just didn't have to worry anymore. And I can see, you can now that you, you know Tom mentioned it in uh, Lufthouses, I can really see that, where it's like, if you don't want to be an aggressive person, but you do still want to express some aggression that you're feeling in some way, um, doing that through medium of games as a designer is like a pretty healthy thing to do. Um, but it's interesting how that can appear in your work and, and manifest itself. Do you think that means that people who, um, so the, do you think that all designers behind aggressive games are going through some aggressive feelings? Um, maybe, uh, you know, probably, probably all designers, I think, but I think you can definitely feel when, um, there isn't quite the, the grit behind the game. I think sincerity is a really important thing. Um, I think if you're playing an action game, you can feel when the designers behind it wanted you to feel aggressive because of something, like, deep in them. Um, which can be good and it can be bad, but, like, I don't know, I, I think, you know, you fake it, but I'm, that I, I certainly feel like I can tell when, when, like, aggression or any, well, like, any emotion really isn't quite realized from someone who is feeling that specific way. Someone was asking me the other day if I could think of any games that made me feel how I feel like watching a romantic comedy, and I couldn't think of any. Can you think of any? Um, like, has anyone... A good romantic comedy, I mean, yeah, I, I has... assume me. <laughs> Not a crappy one, yeah. Has anyone made a game where they've, like... Because there's a lot of games that make me feel vaguely annoyed at Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, usually when games deal with the sub of love, and, and it's something that I wish more games would, you know, maybe tackle with a bit more grace. But um, whenever games tackle the subject of love, it's usually in a very abstract way. Um, like it's a platformer about love. It's this, you know, these characters are a metaphor for what love is, or whatever. Because um, it's really, really hard to verbalize. Yeah, I mean, the best, the best example that I can think of off the top of my head would be Sacrilege. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, Kara Ellison, but um, we've heard of her. Yeah. Um, She's still technically a member of this podcast. <laughs> exactly. But um, I'd say that's probably the best way. It's the most real feeling way of dealing with emotion. I mean, I guess to an extent, gone home, but that's not really like, that's not a rom-com. I mean, I don't know. It's tough. I was actually going to mention something Cara written as well, because uh, she wrote recently about... Um, this a very strange mission in Dragon Age 2, which basically acts like a romantic comedy, um, in which it doesn't actually involve you, unlike all other Bioware romances, it involves two NPCs, and you essentially act as the 
the friend doing the zany scheme to try and get them together. Oh god, I remember that. Yeah, basically, yeah. um, yeah, the, uh, Avalyn, the, um, captain of the guard, fancies one of her guardsmen, and they kind of go out for a, a walk, and, which is usually punctuated by murdering, uh, by, um, murdering a bunch of monsters, and you kind of have to clear the monsters out of the way so they can have really awkward romantic conversations. It's, uh, so that's one of the few, I, I think, that does kind of feel like a romantic comedy, maybe, in the, 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 the awkward way they talk to each other. Yeah, it's, um, a level like that operates more like a parody mm. rather than like a, a genuine attempt at a romantic comedy sort of thing. I, I mean, I guess that's sort of, you could say that for most romantic comedy movies where there's this element of self-parody and like, you know, tropes and things like that. But even then, it's like, usually those, like a good romantic comedy deals with the issues of relationships and how different types of people conflict. Um, and, and, you know, I actually saw a really interesting talk um, about this uh, that it was at GDC and it's on the GDC vault so you can actually watch it um, by Chris Darlin called Love, Hate, Relationships, New Approaches to Game Romances and he talked about trying to make a game that is a romantic comedy and this is what I said to the person who asked me the question I was like oh I don't know of any games but just go and listen to this talk like it's really interesting the way he talks about like gamifying relationships Mm. and how you should have more than one um kind of measure so it shouldn't just be like do positive things until the like bar is high enough that the person wants to have sex with you there should be kind of more than one uh more than one element to it there's a really interesting talk i'll uh, send you the link and you can put it in the show notes i mean this is something um yeah i mean bioware games are the games that really try and deal with romance and they they sort of hit and miss with them mm. um but one of the examples that i i liked at least for a little bit i can't remember how this romantic subplot resolves itself um but there was definitely a point in Mass Effect 2 if you try and romance Jack, where if you try and be really nice and paragon with her, she just gets really frustrated with you because she doesn't like people treating her that way. She feels like it's insincere. And that's cool. Jack is interesting because she essentially has like two endings to her romance track. You can essentially have a one night stand with her and at which point she doesn't really ever want to talk to you again. Or you can pursue a, a genuine relationship. You can do either. Um, yeah. But, like, that's an example where it's like, okay, you're getting, you're heading more in the direction of someone who is complicated and does have needs that extend beyond just being nice to them. Yeah. Um, the separation of love and sex as well is something that I find really interesting because games seem to consider the two to be the same. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, like sex is this grand end goal to a relationship. And again, yeah. they experiment a bit with that because both of the, the, the two games, really, Mass Effect 2 and, and Dragon Age 2, they kind of experiment with this stuff a bit more. To try and move out of the because you're right, it was getting a bit um, tired and repetitive. So there's Isabella who sleeping with her is the start of the relationship, as far as that's concerned, rather than some grand end goal. But I never played far enough to figure, find out how that ended. Um, I was going to mention for romantic comedy. I don't know if this actually applies. It's a game that people, have, uh, but um, I like. Uh, I've been told to play and made a note to play, and then not gotten back to it. Which is, is it save the date? Oh my god. That game's so good. <laughs> it's really, really amazing. That's kind of a grand. It's kind of basically Groundhog Day, the game, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's really, really great in that it's like obviously it's, it's about learning about a character in this kind of um, like comedic and sort of weirdly manipulative way. Um, but it, you know. It grows into something really, really sincere, and I like that. I like it when you can play a game and you feel like 
there's genuine heart behind it. And it wasn't just them going like, this is the story you want to tell. Like there's an end goal that feels like it comes from a very personal place. And uh, yeah, I, I'd really recommend anyone play Save the Day. It's it's a really fantastic game. Cool. Um, so I, we've, we've, we've headed you off from talking about Dark Souls there, kind of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dark Souls. About Dark Souls. We do talk about Dark Souls a lot, mostly because Pip's doing this um, this thing where she just live streams it with uh, uh, Craig Lamb and Craig Lager, who know the game really well, like skyping in and commentating and giving her hints and occasional lies, and <laughs> and acting as like with angel and demon on her shoulder. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I won't go into it too much because it does it does sound like that's being covered. But like for as a as a game developer, mm-hmm. playing Dark Souls is really interesting, not just because it, it gets a bunch of design conventions and turns them on its head, but mm. more because like the experience of playing Dark Souls is like eerily similar to the experience of learning how to code. Like really, really seriously similar. I mean, usually if you just that whole thing of when you come up against a problem, if you get killed instantly, it doesn't mean that you should be trying harder. It means that you should be trying something different. Mm. And that's how code works. And then if you still can't do it, you can research and find more efficient ways to do it. It's about, uh, you know, refining yourself and trying different methods and really understanding this thing that you're working with mm. in a way that is very, very similar to the process of learning programming. Ugh, um, I need to not learn how to program. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you how you approached it because it's interesting that a bunch of people have like different ways of looking at it. Like I know Craig with Dark Souls 2 deliberately refused to look up anything or find out anything and would only talk to a small group of friends who made the same promise about it. Whereas um, when we had uh, Kesha McDonald on here before, she feels that the like social element of Dark Souls is a huge part of it, and so she was constantly, you know, reading stuff, uh, summoning people all the time. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I I read the wiki a lot. I summon when I need to, mm-hmm. uh, or when I feel I need to, because um, while I would... Dark Souls is one of the few games where I would happily spend hours and hours and hours in that world, but I also just can't afford the time to do that. <laughs> so, like, instead of going, oh, I'm going to spend five hours on this boss fight and figure out how to do it all by myself, I look at the wiki, find out the best method, and then execute on that but i find that really weirdly rewarding in a different way um Mm. when i used to play fallout 3 and also uh like oblivion as well Mm. um i would go on the wiki a lot and just scroll through and try to find the best gear and then when i saw gear that i liked i would find out exactly what steps i had to take to get that gear and it was like its own game in its own right that was far more interesting than the main quest line or anything like that at least to me Mm. and dark souls kind of works in a different in a similar way where it almost feels like you're using cheat codes because you have this extra knowledge and it makes you feel like you're smart and have like you have this extra tool at your disposal. And I there are very few other games that do that. Um like I, I mean Minecraft's a good example where it's like you feel smarter when you build something really complicated because you know that you have to spend ages reading up on it to do that. Hmm. Um and yeah, I mean I, I can totally see why someone would want to play Dark Souls uh blind. But I, I think it's just, a, at least for me, it's a really engaging experience playing it alongside looking at a wiki. Hmm. Um, so Jordan, what have you been playing lately? Well, I've had an incredibly busy, let's see, three weeks, I think, doing various reviews. Um, so I've been playing a lot. 
uh, ones that I can talk about, I reviewed, oh, the issue of The Observer that came out today as in the day we're recording, not today as in the day that the podcast came out. So sorry, listeners, you won't be able to buy it, um, has my little piece about destiny in it, mm. uh, in which I also mention The Sims 4 and Hokum and Dance Central Spotlight, which I've also been playing. Uh, I've also been playing uh, Fable Anniversary for PC Gamer and a couple of games for Mac Format, which is... Uh, so the one that is most interesting is probably Road Not Taken, but I think you might have talked about that already. Uh, it doesn't ring a bell. Oh, okay. So that's a little indie puzzle game, which is quite cool. So, yeah, make your pick. I will talk about any of the uh, aforementioned. I was going to say, it's um, it's kind of a predictable one, but I've been... I haven't played Destiny at all myself, but mm. I've just been, like, sort of absorbing the general reaction, um, which has been kind of fat, because it's... Um, Oh gosh, it's been so interesting, hasn't it? The way people have the kind of um, the timeline of reactions. <coughs> it's oh. kind of like an event thing, which we don't get that often anymore. Maybe once or twice a year, where everyone is. It's kind of like where everyone snarks at E3 at the same time. It's uh, <laughs> every, everyone except the PC game critics are now playing <laughs> Destiny. <laughs> yeah, hmm. but yeah, it's interesting to see the um, the way that the uh, quote, generally accepted opinion, end mm. quote, of the game has shifted. So all the people who are trying to not not review it fully, because I don't think many publications actually did give in and review it fully on the first in the first couple of days, which is good, mm. because it obviously wasn't meant to be reviewed fully then. But people did do these kind of first impression things. Yeah, they didn't... There was no advanced stuff as far as I know. I think Polygon and Eurogamer both wrote about it. They basically they got it that um, they were playing it on the same schedule as anyone else. So most of them took. Oh yeah, the servers week. went up like we got like half a day before other people got to play. It wasn't any real advantage at all. Um, I was gonna say it's that's quite. Um, it's, I think thing people maybe outside the industry don't sometimes don't realize how much pressure that can be under because. Um, I think most people post their reviews on Friday, so it, yeah, it, they basically had like three days of playing the game, like twelve hours a day, and yeah. then one day to write their actual review. Yeah, I did this once with Rome Total War, and it nearly killed me. It was, um, it was <laughs> awful. Like, and so ba- I've just started playing it again today. I've started a new character because my um my best friend who I play, I played all of Borderlands and Borderlands Two with her, so she's like my co-op buddy. She finally got a PS4 and. Um, we've been playing Destiny and we started it today. So I started a new character. But my first one was just, it was just a rushed blur to try and play as much as I could before I had to write about it. Um, luckily, I didn't have to do a proper review. Like, there's no score on the article that I wrote for The Observer. Yeah. It's just about the general idea of this this shared world shooter, which is why I talked about all the other games, because I'm talking about um, like the social aspects to games and stuff. Um, I talk about, so most of it is about Destiny and the different kinds of multiplayer in it, but then I mention um, The Sims 4 and how there's all the, the the sharing of the content that you create and the fact that I feel like the game has been designed to create moments that people want to share on Twitch and YouTube and stuff. And then I talked about Dance Central Spotlight, which is obviously another game that's way better if you play it with friends. Um, and then I mentioned Hohokum as like a as like a contrast game, like one that you want to play on your own, because it's not actually the kind of game that you want to really look up 
the answers or talk to people about how you solve it because it's it's kind of meditative and you get the most out of it by exploring it entirely by yourself even more so than i know people feel that way about dark souls but even more so than dark souls i think like the point of it is to not know what you're doing Mm. um but yeah i just wrote about um the different kinds of multiplayer and destiny and i'm really really glad that i didn't have to write a scored review within (laughs) three days of getting it because that just would have been impossible what would you score it (laughs) i'm not giving it a score (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of feels like a classic, like um, one of those. I kind of think of them as six to eight games, where it's like yeah. either uh, it's like okay, there's some good ideas and some flaws, and depending on which of these is more important to you, you will either put make it six or eight. <laughs> exactly, and like, but the problem is, if you go with your gut, I mean, it's really fun. Like moment to moment, it's such a fun game. But then you just you kind of stop, and you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> like. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was gonna say, yeah, Dan, you were talking about like um, some of uh, Oblivion and Fallout Three. Or I, I've had that moment with a couple of Bethesda games where you suddenly like, wait, what am I even doing? Yeah, <laughs> and that and that's the moment where you're like, okay, I need like this game needs to give me something, <laughs> so I I can justify playing this, like mm. so I can justify spending this much time on it. And like, it Which sounds like the I... Destiny beta did that quite well, and then the actual game doesn't. Hmm. The thing with me, now that I'm playing it co-op, that's, I've got that. You know, for some people it'll be competitive multiplayer, that'll be all they want to get out of Destiny, but for hmm. me it's being able to play it with my best friend because there aren't many, there aren't many co-op games that we both want to play and I'm really glad that we found one and it seems like we'll be able to play it for quite a long time. So that, the fact that it's given me that means that I like it. If, you know, if I just carried on playing it on my own like I was for the review, then I probably wouldn't have liked it quite as much. Yeah, I was almost tempted to get into Destiny just because it seemed like everyone was playing it at once, and I thought, I was thinking, here's a chance to actually play with my friends before they all go back to playing Dota again. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, um, so tell us about a Road Not Taken, was it? Yeah, so um, it's a puzzle roguelike. Um, it's this really kind of cool, um, well, literally cool. So it's set in this village in like the dead of winter and um you're this like hooded figure this kind of stranger who comes to town um on a contract to help them save uh their children who go missing every year in a blizzard when they go picking berries which they need to do because the town relies on the income that they get from these berries so it's it's an incredibly like cynical um cold world where like that's why we have child labor laws yeah it's so like there is (laughs) funny um little things like the fountain in the in the town says on the plaque on it says something like um love marriage children like that is the ultimate goal or something like you have to have kids and then the kids have to go and like go and pick berries so that the town can survive and um if you only survive if you only save half of the children that's okay because you've got enough to do the harvest next year (laughs) like you don't have to save them all um but the way you play it is that you go out into the forest and um it's kind of like uh the forest is made up of separate rooms and they're kind of gridded and you have to reunite the kids with adults by picking them up and throwing them with your magic staff (laughs) this is such a strange game (laughs) (laughs) because if you carry them around then it saps your energy and because it's like the dead of winter you can't really afford to lose your energy and if you do you die and you have to start again from the beginning uh because it's a roguelike 
Um, and I think like the game, it's like 15 years that you have to do this for each year and it gets harder and harder and, and I'm not very good at it and I haven't made it in very far. Um, although I've started again quite a few times. Um, but you, as well as the kids and the adults in each of these areas of the forest, there's also loads of different objects. So there's forest animals, um, like deer and moles and stuff. And there are objects like trees and rocks and, um, and then there are like spirits and uh, other kind of magical creatures like that. And they all do different things and they can all be combined in different ways to um, create different objects. And it's kind of like a match three-esque game in that you need to do things like get three deer grouped together to open the door into the next area, except the deer move when you do. So you need to make sure they're blocked into a corner so that they can't kind of move and close the door again. Um, And you can do things like if you uh, if you combine i think three of these spirits together then you get an axe and you can combine an axe with a tree to get a log and if you combine two logs you get a fire and if you get a fire then you don't your energy isn't sapped as much and stuff like that and there's like more than a hundred different items that you can come across and combine and create so it's quite complicated and it's incredibly difficult um but it's it's kind of neat like it's got this uh this dark sense of humor that's quite cool um but I don't know, it's just a bit too hard. Like it doesn't make me want to go back and quickly try again. Like the thing with roguelikes, like um, I really, really love Don't Starve. And that's because I really, really enjoy like every moment of playing. So I don't mind that when I die, I just start again instantly because I love starting again because I like making my camp and I like like gathering stuff. But with um with Road Not Taken, I don't like starting again. I don't like going through the easy puzzles and then going to the really, really difficult ones and like having to go through all that again. So mm. I don't know. I, I feel like, I don't know, a giant wuss for saying that a game is too hard. But I feel like if you're going to make a puzzle game, especially one that's based around match three type mechanics, then it should probably be a little bit more casual, a little bit more accessible. I don't know. What do you think? Sounds really strange. Yes, yeah. Yeah. it's really it's worth checking out. I'm not going to give it a I'm not going to give it a really high score, but it is definitely still worth looking at. Mm. Um, yeah. And I played it on my MacBook Air, and it played fine. And I've got like the shittest MacBook Air that you could get back in 2012 or something. So you don't need anything particularly powerful to run it, and it looks really nice as well. Like it's got quite a nice um, style. But yeah, I don't think I will go back to it. Really it's interesting. Um, what you say about the progression, because I know that's something that, uh, I think was Crypt of the Necro Dancer. Like, that was a complaint that a few people had, where it was like, when you go back to the first sort of stage, it seems really slow. And getting through that can be a real struggle. Yeah. Um, it's something that, like, roguelikes seem to be struggling with more now than when they, there was this big resurgence of them after Spelunky became a hit. Mm. Um, it's interesting. I'm not sure why it's coming around now. I guess it's people trying to expand roguelikes and do more, like, weirder stuff with them again. But it's, it's strange. I mean, there's a great game um, that I was watching a video of yesterday called Due Process, mm-hmm. um, which is, like, randomly generated Counter-Strike, where, like, one team oh, has yeah. to... Like, yeah, like, they have to defend this one randomly generated room and another team has to attack the room, and there's, like, this planning stage before you go in. And each yeah, match... Yeah, it's kind of like a bit... There's a little bit of SWAT and Rainbow Six in there as well. Yeah, it looks really good. But there's, like, a 30-second planning phase or something, and then about a minute of gameplay, and then you restart. 
and it's one of the first examples of a multiplayer game that I've seen where it has like that quick restart thing that um like all the best roguelikes have. Mm. And that seems really interesting to me. Um that they they're sort of adopting roguelike Lifros's style pacing to this multiplayer game. Because um, definitely something that a lot of designers struggle with. Yeah, I was gonna say, um, I think in the in the podcast that we unfortunately lost due to some uh, technical problems, someone asked us what they thought the uh, what we thought the um, most like important new mechanic or idea in gaming was recently, and I said um, instant restart. Um, that sort of I think it was trials that kind of popularised it. That sort of immediately back, uh, immediately try again with no downtime, no. No moment of regret. No, no, no time to throw your controller at the wall. Um, yeah, so, and then obviously that's a big part of the roguelike craze, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something. That, I mean, it's what Ten Second Ninja hinged on mm-hmm. um, was was that quick restart thing, and it's. I think um, the fact that we're only now really having a, a proper good discussion, a, a lot of experimentation around the subject of restarting and how that should work. Is really really cool. I mean, you know, to briefly go back to Dark Souls, Dark Souls is a game that will not let you quickly restart, but it benefits the game because it teaches you about the game while it's doing that. Like, it's very very rare that you get two Dark Souls runs that go exactly the same. Like, you always learn something different or you approach something in a different way, and that validates uh, these long gaps between when you can restart. Um, and I think it's very important that designers evaluate whether they can pull that off and whether and, you know, what's beneficial to their game. I mean, Splunky gets around it by letting you open up shortcuts, and that's really mm. smart. Um, but yeah, yeah it's, I, I, it does seem like something like maybe um, the road not taking all Crypt of the Necrodance that maybe have these um, easy starter levels could do with the Splunky style shortcut. Because um, I mean, the other thing about Splunky is that it's it's still murderously hard from the very beginning. It's very easy if you're not concentrating, you'll still die in the mines, no matter how good you are. Yeah, I, I think the main thing is like you can't afford to have that um, to to have these long gaps between when you get back to the stage you were at. If you aren't, if you don't make like engagement with the player. Like a constant during that time. Like with Splunky, you can't afford to go on autopilot because you will die. And to an extent, it's the same with Dark Souls. It's like if you go on autopilot, that's enough to make you fail. You have to be switched on all the time. And uh, I think one of the problems with with something like Crypt of the Necro Dancer, which I haven't played, but it's, you know, judging from what other people have been saying, is you do go. And the autopilot on those levels so by the time you get back to the point that you're on you have to switch gears and suddenly be like very active in this game that's not really what it's like with road not taken maybe i didn't describe it properly i think it's more that um knowing that you have to go through the levels again they're actually quite a slog like the first couple are easy but the next ones like there's just a lot of kind of busy work that you have to do Do they feel random enough? Is that part of it? Because there is some procedural generation. Um, so some of the rooms are the same each time, and some of them are completely uh, randomised. Apart from that, you know, you won't have X kind of object until you get to later years because it makes things more difficult or whatever. But I think that 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 randomness almost makes it worse because you just 
you kind of you walk into the next screen and you're like okay another random collection of objects that I have to pick up and move around until I can actually do something and it's kind of it's kind of tiring almost I was thinking because it kind of has to be interestingly random rather than just random Um, I mean there is there are some really great aspects to the game like kind of discovering combinations of things and what they create kind of by random and by experimentation is really really fun um, some of them don't really make much sense. So like combining two logs to make a fire obviously does make some sense, but there are some things that just don't at all. Like if you use a, gosh, what was it? If you use an axe on a ninja bear, then it makes an apple. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that is pretty, I was going to say two logs and a fire doesn't make that much sense, but compared to that, yes. Yeah. So you can't really, you can't really remember them off the top of your head, which means that you have to keep like looking at your, collection of recipes to like check what things do and it's not very intuitive um so yeah i don't know it kind of just it feels like it could have been it just could have been better that's all but it's still definitely worth checking out because it's Mm. um it's got a really neat feel to it and it's quite different as well um speaking of games set in the in villages in the dead of winter i've been (laughs) playing the banner saga recently Ooh, how's that um yeah, it's really interesting. It's um, it's a sort of combination of basically, choo- uh, sort of choose your own adventure, dialogue choice, storytelling, and then these turn-based uh, tactical um, <coughs> fight maps that are kind of like um, Final Fantasy Tactics or something like that, maybe. Um, but yeah, it's it's absolutely beautiful for a start. I mean, the animation for it are incredible. Um, it's got this sort of it gives you this really odd feeling because it's it's kind of like some it, it kind of feels old in a weird way it kind of feels like a cartoon that you might have seen from years ago um, but still really smoothly animated not uh, it, there's just so, I don't know, something about it um, but yeah it, and it's all about um, a bunch of Vikings slow, uh, in in the sort of in this apocalyptic scenario. But not like a a big noisy apocalypse. Just kind of like the world is slowly freezing over and everyone's dying. Tom, mm-hmm. are there lady Vikings? Because I don't know if you saw, but in the recent news, um, there were some Viking bodies or something that were dug up and discovered to actually be women, and people had just assumed that they were male because they were buried with weapons. Uh, yeah. Well, they're not. It's not um, directly based on any uh, Nordic, at least not any Nordic mythology that I know. Um, but yes, there are female characters in it. Uh, okay. I've seen a couple so far. Um, but yeah, there's a whole like cast of different heroes with their own unique abilities who you sort of shovel in and out of your party. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess sort of Fire Emblem y. I, I haven't actually played Fire Emblem. But I, everyone tells me I should. Um, <laughs> it's a long list of games we haven't played this podcast. Oh, it's, um, always, it's always the case. <laughs> Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. There's, there's a kind of strangeness to it in that it doesn't really have a protagonist. In fact, who you are, uh, seems to shift, like, with every act. Like, the first one, you're this, um, there's, in, there's both, I said Vikings, but there's both, like, sort of Nordic humans and these giant, uh, giants with horns on their heads called Val. Um, you play, like, a Val tax collector in the first, uh, first section. And then, Later on, you're this uh, this huntsman, and then later on, you're another Val, and yeah, you're constantly sort of changing perspectives as to who you are, um, which is interesting because there's not a lot of games that actually 
properly do that. Uh, probably try and do multiple protagonists and correct to create an ensemble story like that. Does it's it almost, work well, or are there some that are more engaging than others? Um, I, I've only about uh, I've, I've only met like I've only gone through like three different protagonists at the moment, so it's hard to tell. It's a little bit strange in that it's in, in that kind of because that's disconnected because um, they aren't necessarily together. Like the huntsman guy that you play as in the second one is in a completely different part of the world from the people you were with in the first time. So kind of any actual progress you are making is just kind of lost in terms of um, in terms of actually building up your caravan with all your little soldiers and everything. Um, so that's a bit of a shame. But uh, it's interestingly different, at least. I'm not really sure if it's gonna, how it's going to work yet. Um, I'm guessing they're all going to essentially slowly be united as it, um, and grouped together as the game goes on, but it just hasn't happened yet. Like Love Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to compare it to Game of Thrones, but actually that's far more appropriate. <laughs> this is that video game rom-com. Oh, there we go. <laughs> that's what we were talking about. Yeah. And uh, this is made by ex-Bioware people as well, so it all, it yeah. all connects. It is, yeah. Um, although at this point, kind of, when you see like a Kickstarter or something for X, um, saying uh, ex-Bioware, or what, the classic one is ex-Bioshock developer, it's like, has this term become meaningless now? Because I feel like everyone has worked on Bioshock at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Not to take yeah. it away from the many people who have. It's just like there's so many people who have gone through that project. I was talking to someone about this yesterday, actually. Do you think that... Um, so we were talking about how everyone in the games industry knows each other and why that's in, why it's so stupid that the Gamergate people are drawing up all these charts with all these lines between them. Mm. And do you think that it's because there's quite a high turnover at game development studios... So people are likely, more likely to have worked in lots of different studios than perhaps people in other industries are to have worked in different companies. Do you think that's the case? Dan, you probably know more than I do. I've only sort of been in the industry for like about three years now, honestly. Um, but already, you know, you frequently go to events where you'll be talking to someone that you know, another person you, who you know will walk up and they'll already know each other. Um, and it doesn't matter if they've worked in, you know, like a company like EA or like Creative Assembly, or whether they're just an indie who's been making games independently out of like after finishing uni for a year or two. Um, like everyone does just sort of know each other because you end up in similar places all the time, and you you know your networks just overlap everywhere. I mean the the industry is just astonishingly big, um, but at the same time, it's you know. There's just so much overlap. If if you go to Eurogamer, then you're going to meet other developers. It's just unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I mean, I think it sort of works like any industry, except the difference here is it's a lot more accessible than a lot of other industries. Um, and there's, I feel like there's probably a bit more game developer and journalist overlap than there is in something like the film industry, where you know the communities are a bit more gated off. There's, I think there's something to what you say, Jordan, that the game, games development in terms of large studios at least is kind of slightly more insecure than most, not, sorry, unsecure, not, not as in, uh, not as in, um, you know, they're full of self-doubt, though I'm sure some of them are, but as in their jobs are very secure and there's a lot more sort of seasonal unemployment uh, which maybe people talk about Hollywood though, and how mm. everyone just works on films on like contracts. You don't have like you don't form a studio 
and then make a film and then like everyone gets fired like they do in the games industry but you just you decide to make a film and you're like okay i'm gonna hire this person as this this person as this and then when the film is done everyone's done that's a good point actually um and i imagine there's probably a similar amount of everyone knowing each other from there but of course with the um we kind of only see the celebrity side of film development we don't really know that a bunch of cameramen all know each other um but yeah, that's probably a good point. Although they seem to have a better handle on how to do it than we do. Maybe because, as you say, they don't actually create a studio and form a building around it. Although there are studios, as it were. They kind of they kind of seem to be better at forming these ad hoc teams that last for about two or three years and then disband. Yeah. I think as well, like uh, another important factor is that um, there's there's a disconnect between a film viewer and the film. Um, both with independent films and, you know, bigger films. Um, whereas with games, if you're playing a game, you're having a conversation with the development team. Like, just by the nature of games. By interact, you know, it's like the development team is going, there's ten goblins running towards you, what are you gonna do? And the player's going, I'm gonna swing my sword at them. And, like, it's a super simple conversation, but it's still a conversation, and it's not that big a jump as it would be with film to transition that over to social media and to transition that over to Twitter. Like, if you're, you know, already having this conversation with EA while you're playing Battlefield, essentially, and then the game breaks, it's not that big a jump to go on a forum and then yell at EA about them being terrible and mm. selling faulty products. And by the same, ex- by you know, in a similar way, that's sort of how, you know, stuff with the games press works. Like, if you're playing Bioshock Infinite and you... Read an article about it that says something negative about Bioshock Infinite, like it's racist or whatever. Um, it's not that difficult to transition playing the game over to having a conversation on your keyboard about how you disagree or how you haven't seen it or how you're not a racist. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just that jump isn't there and that's terrifying. Like interactivity with other mediums is a choice. Um, whereas with games, it's the barrier to entry. And that changes a lot, I think. I was just going to say, from the business side of view, it's, it is interesting that... I think there's possibly reasons for it, that films is able to compartmentalise more, that, you know, once you've actually shot the footage and it's handed off to the editors, you don't really need to talk to the actors again. But, um... Whereas the games industry, I guess, is more iterative, in that, um... You know, problems found... You know, when the QA testers find a problem, they boot it right back to the developers, or... So on. Anyway, um... Should probably. Uh, what else was I going to say? I was going to say that I really enjoyed the um, uh, sort of turn-based battle system from the uh, Banner Saga. It's really quite nasty and brutally hard um, at times. Mostly because there hasn't seen so far. I haven't found any way to make people recover hit points at all. There's no healing. But it reminds me of um, uh, Fourth Edition Dungeons and Dragons to get really nerdy, which has some really clever ideas about moving, about putting, uh, like having this sort of tactical grid and then having a bunch of powers being about moving people around. Um, so for instance, like one of the people in the um, Banner Saga, one of the like big giant guys with a shield has a shield bash and you can use that to punt enemies further away from you and they'll take, um, uh, which is useful in itself. You can punt them through other enemies, which deals dam- lots of damage to different people. Or you can even decide that you'll hurt one of your allies a bit just to just to knock them across the board so that they're safer when their turn comes up. Um, which is really interesting. 
Um, I love those kind of mechanics, and it was always a shame to me that there was never a proper like D&D 4th edition game that did that kind of turn-based tactical stuff. But anyway, um, I think we've been going for like an hour now, so we should probably answer some questions and finish up. Uh, Alex Roberts, who was actually on this podcast back when we did our last Game City podcast almost a year ago now. Um, before I was a before I was a regular. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, when things were better. <laughs> <laughs> Asks, um, I'm guessing this is for Dan. How does it feel to be at the forefront of the Nindies campaign? Okay, <laughs> so this was a bad thing that I did because I'm very unprofessional. Um, so what happened was I realised that you could put Nin at the front of Indies. And have some fun wordplay for a Nintendo initiative for indie developers. Mm. And I tweeted that. And then I got obsessed with it. And decided that I wanted to make it so when Nintendo turn up to work on Monday, they just assume that it's a thing that's been started internally. (laughs) Um, And I got a surprising amount of people to tweet about it. I got a bunch of people asking, like, what is this? And like people not even asking me, like, what is Nindies? What are these things? What's Nintendo doing? Where's it? I can't find any information on this. So it feels pretty good to be at the forefront of that. Um, I'm glad to be the one who's championing this new initiative that Nintendo don't know about. <laughs> um, yeah. So how viral has it gone? Is are they going to get in in on Monday morning and like find like and uh, find notes on their desk with Nindies on? Is it trending? <laughs> uh, it's not trending. Um, basically, I'm gonna. I don't know. I might do some more work on it tonight because my goal is. I'm not expecting any significant change, but my goal is to get a, a tweet from Nintendo just saying like, "Dan, please stop." Um, <laughs> have you? Um, and, have you, yeah. you should speak to. Uh, um, <laughs> you, you should speak to uh, Kate Gray and Matthew Castle from Official Nintendo Magazine because they will probably sneak it in there. You know, That's a good point. I should. Nintendo magazine, Tom. Yes, true. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Kate has moved to OXM now, but uh, I think Matthew is still on O and M at the moment. Yeah, I follow a lot of people at O and M because that was like the first gaming magazine that I read. Um, so like, I have a bunch of copies of it on my uh, bookshelf right now. <laughs> so I would, I would love to like. Well, given that like one of the most recent issues, they they like had all their staff members down as, like, Link and Ganondorf and a bunch of other stuff. I think they're pretty open to those kind of jokes. Yeah, I should shoot for that then. Uh, and the other main question we got was, um, which video game camera, uh, character would be best to form a religion around? Uh, that's by David. It just says David. Ooh, that is an interesting one. Hmm. Form a religion around. I mean, so many games have God in, though. That feels like a yeah, def- definitely not God as God. No, no, gosh, imagine that religion. I <laughs> know. <laughs> see, the thing is, like, the things that keep popping into my head are things that people already get really like obsessive over. That would just be horrible because the fan bases are really annoying. Like, mm. like I was thinking Gladys. From Portal, Oof. but then everyone would talk about Cake all the time. Mm. I really like Cake, though. Same, <laughs> but like they would make me hate Cake. Or mm. you could go Luigi, mm. and then people would be like, do Luigi death stares to each other all the time. But again, that would get really annoying. Are you comparing religion to memes? 
Because <laughs> I'm not sure how religious people would feel about that. That was not, originally... I'm when the saying... Word, when the word meme was coined, it was actually used to describe religion. See? So it was originally just a... Co- an, I, the original idea was it was um, just ideas, but compared to genetics um, in how they were transmitted. So um, certain ideas would be resistant and would... Um, transmit more and I think religion was one of the key ones of those it might have actually been Richard Dawkins who came up with the words oh god <laughs> yeah well I, I know I guess I'm just saying that like the jump from memes to religion is smaller than just finding a character in a game and basing a religion around them because it would have to be something that already has a strong social movement behind it mm. I don't know, I'd quite like, I don't know, like the thing in The Traveller in Destiny, because I guess then I would get superpowers, Mm. uh, which would be quite cool. Ah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I I kind of like, (laughs) this is making me just wish that real religion was like fantasy um, RPG religion, where you actually got real, where you actually got real superpowers. Yeah, that'd be neat. Mm. There's all the different gods in Skyrim, right, and all the different demons as well. Demons, De- what they're called, Daedra, Daedra, yeah, Daedra. Who are well, mm. technically gods as well? I know a bunch about Skyrim law. I was reading up on it a while ago. Um, so, which one? Which one would you prefer to build your religion around? Oh like God. The one of sex, right? And the one of like food. You, I, all right, okay. I would pick Sithis because there's a very strong theory that Sithis is the only one true god in Skyrim. Isn't that um, the one that's just like for murderers? Yeah, but it's there's some very legitimate points behind it that imply that Sithis pulls the strings behind all the other gods. So, you know, hell Sithis. But, um, if I was going to pick a character from Elder Scrolls to be, like, the head of a religion, I would pick, uh, do you remember there's, I'm not sure if you ever did this, but in Oblivion, if you finish the arena quest line, you get an annoying fan who follows you around. Oh, god, yeah. The adoring fan. Yeah, the adoring fan would be... There are a lot of videos on YouTube of people murdering this man in creative ways. I like the idea of the adoring fan being some sort of martyr for some kind of religious movement. Um, after being killed so many times by so many different people, like that, he like the adoring fan is some kind of a spiritual symbol of hate. Um, so I'd like oh, to maybe the uh, oh, that's making me think of the park inspector in Rollercoaster Tycoon, <laughs> you know, who is invulnerable to all harm and constantly just wanders around taking notes and judging you. Um, <laughs> Which feels, yeah. yeah, seems kind of fitting. Um, You're drawing fans mine. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with the park inspector from Rollercoaster Tycoon. Jordan, do you have one? Oh, I'm sure I've answered this question before. It could just be you in The Sims, I guess. Well, that's what I was going to say, and I think <laughs> that's what I said last time. Because, let's face it, if you're nice to the, the god in The Sims, they can give you whatever you want, you know? They can get you woohoo with with all the different people that you fancy, and they can get you a really nice house, they can use the cheat code, and you can have a mansion. Um, they can just click on you, and you're happy using the uh, testing cheats enabled uh, tool. They can blur you out if you're naked and insecure. Yeah, they could do that. Um... They can change your, you know, they can use the new creator sim to give you like a nose job or whatever if you if you fancy that. So probably if I was going to suck up to one god, it would be the god that's in the sims because that has the most relevance to my actual real life. And if you roll them, they'll seal you in a tiny room with only a cooker and no fire extinguisher. Yeah. yeah. And if someone tries to take your baby away, you can just seal them off in a room and no one can get to it. Yeah. 
all gods are vengeful anyway, so you might as well pick one that can give you. Peace. <laughs> uh, cool. Um, that's all the questions we got, actually. So I think that's pretty much it for um, this week. Thanks for joining us, Sam. No problem. Cool. Um, and next week, we haven't actually organised this, but we may be recording something live from Eurogamer Expo. We'll figure it out. But we will see you all then. We'll, uh, I'll be there, as will Jordan and Pip, I believe. So you might see us there. All right. Goodbye, everyone.